Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? What are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team, our website is invisible.co, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. We have today Anne Dudek, the CEO and founder of Rad Studios, and Francis Pedrasa, the founder of Invisible Infinity. And if you've been paying attention to the last few episodes, we've been going through all the different Infinity business units and going into their founding story and what makes them tick. So welcome to the show. Howdy. Thanks. And what is Rad Studios? Rad Studios is a design studio. And what makes it different is that it takes AI and uses it not as a tool, but as a fundamental process step. And by reconstructing the design process to make AI integral, you actually open up the human design components for more freedom. And especially when you're looking at the cost coming from a client, it allows the client to spend on creativity and not production. Fascinating. And so all of our business units are focused on this tech-enabled services angle. And for our listeners, they might not know what that means. And can you give a little understanding? It's really interesting because we're pitching all of these different <laughs> business units. Yeah. All of these different business unit has tech-enabled services. So I've been pitching a Cosmos form of tech-enabled services. Francis pitches a different version of Cosmos. And then you would hear a different version. You, could, you probably have talked with other people about Cosmos. And then we have the same thing for Rad Studios, that it's not only a tech-enabled service. And we, so there's different ways to explain tech-enabled services. How do you define or explain tech-enabled services? Great question. So I think a lot of people don't realize that design is a service, right? And I think that's the place to start. And so design as a service, we are already, design is already a tech-enabled service, right? We use technology all the time in the way that we design. And, and so I actually don't think that viewing design as a tech-enabled service is a leap for anybody. And I think that it's actually viewing it as a service that is the leap. Mm -hmm. But what we also have on our side as designers is the ability to show and not tell. And that's a huge boon for us where we have created demo videos and through a couple seconds, we can show people and their reaction is, holy shit, we can do that with technology and apply it to design. 
So I think that we don't have as many leaps as maybe Cosmos does, which is explaining an entirely new industry that has risen out of the amount of digital information that exists. Design technology has been around for quite a long time, and we're just utilizing it in different ways. And we've come up with creative ways to show that. That's very cool. And I want to give a little bit of a shout out because you designed, Rad Studios designed Cosmos's website, and yeah. I have been getting excellent feedback. Uh, I talked to Mac Malcolm Collins and he took a look at the website and he was like, oh, this is a real business. Uh, and, <laughs> and <it's, laughs> but then the funny part was he got hung up on the tech enabled services company and completely disregarded Cosmos just because, uh, he didn't under, he, did, he still doesn't get the, this tech enabled services. Uh, what you said about design is absolutely 100% accurate through things like Photoshop, through all these things. And so can you talk more about the drudgery of design work and <laughs> how, how that's essentially going away and what role Rad Studios is playing? Yeah, I want to give a quick shout out to anyone listening. I think that we talk about the power of brand and it feels very intangible and the power of a well-designed brand. And even a well-designed brand is a well-designed website. And it just adds so much credibility. And when you're trying to pitch or sell, having a pitch deck or, or sales deck that was actually designed and not just put together makes a massive difference in how people receive you. And I think that the easiest way to understand this distinction is meeting a person, right? If you meet a person who looks like they rolled out of bed four minutes ago and is using <laughs> and is using like strange language as they speak to you, you're gonna be like, all right, I, I think I'm getting to the core of their idea, but I have a lot I need to overcome and process in order to just get at the core idea. And when you're well-designed, you're well-presented, people get to that core idea faster because they don't have so many hurdles to jump. So I think small shout out to well-designed brands and sales material because it really makes it easier for a person to get at the heart of what you're trying to do because they don't have a blocker that's visual. Okay, now that I said that and pitched that, I've completely forgotten the question. Oh, drudgery. Yes. <laughs> so there's a couple ways to look at this. I spent many years of my career in the drudgery. And it's how you learn. It's how you learn the microscopic details that really culminate up to a successful project. And so I think that if you look at this production work that's often viewed as drudgery, there is value there. And there is quite a lot of learning potential. It's the same way you would learn a musical instrument 10,000 hours kind of mentality, you really have to dedicate yourself to the craft of, of making things, whether that be a digital thing or, or elsewise. And so I, I don't want to downplay the importance of those hours spent, but I think that paying for those hours, paying for that development becomes a huge limiting factor to people being able to access good design because it gets too expensive. And so we have to create a new dynamic between the education of new people to the field and consumers or customers taking on that cost. And so with the introduction of AI, 
it has the potential to alleviate some of that work and alleviate some of that cost with the ultimate goal being that we can get more good design out into the world. Because if we reduce the cost of good design, more people would buy it and more people would have access to it. And I think with the proliferation of some tools, I don't want to narc on Canva, but Canva is a race to mediocrity. Mm. And I think that we don't want to use technology that way. We want to make sure we have experts, professionals, people who have put in their 10,000 hours guiding the design decisions and then using AI to reduce some of that drudgery. Very cool. Francis, any thoughts? Many thoughts. Do you want to give me direction? <laughs> so interesting. So we've got all these tech-enabled services, operations as a service, organization as a service, design, design as a service. Is that what Rad Studio does? Design as mm -hmm. a service? Executive assistance as a service. There's all this drudgery. What is your take on what Anne just said about this important of design and maybe that call out of, about Canva of, you know, that race to mediocrity? Because as soon as I had said that, I, I, I realized that, that I do believe that, that is the case uh, because it gives you these sort of templates. But that template was the perfect for me as a non-design person to go in and get mediocre quickly because I needed just something to, to visually appeal. Uh, but now we're entering a whole new world. So that's the question. What new world are we entering? Mm. Nice. Uh, behind me, I have a photo of nature. Nature is the inspiration for all designers. Nature is perfect. Look at it. If you're listening, you can't look at it, but I'm looking at a beautiful <laughs> photograph of the Great Plains of looks like a red-tailed hawk flying over a, a hill that has this beautiful stone. I don't know the type of stone, maybe it's granite. And it looks like there are Rubs. Maybe there are actually trees, depending on how high this photo is. Maybe there are oaks and little yellow grass in between, and it's a beautiful sunset. The, the clouds are in a haze, but there's no symmetry in, in in the pattern. It's it's seemingly random, but not at all. It's like perfect. It's like a painter made it. <clears throat> Anyways, I think we've all had these moments where we slow down and marvel at nature as something that is beyond design just is it's like reality itself and and then you land in a major american city and as you're flying in from the plane you're seeing grids um and traffic patterns and then when you're driving through um you're seeing brand on the highway and when you go into 7-eleven brand and i suspect that a conversation about branding can't if you really want to talk about the essence of what branding is all about, we actually can't start first by necessarily pitching our branding agency, our design agency. We go way deeper and think like, what is a brand? But do you mind if we drop to that level? Right. <laughs> okay. I think that the best way to start that conversation is with an Eastern and a Western line. And this is going back as far as you can go. On the East, it's the opening line of the Dao De Jing which in Chinese is Dao Ka Dao, Fei Chang Dao, Ming Ka Ming, Fei Chang Ming. That which can be named is not the eternal name. The true essence, 
that can be set, or sorry, got it wrong. The essence that can be said is not the true essence. The name that can be named is not the true name. Um, the essence that can be said is not the true essence. The name that can be named is not the true name. So the reason why that's at the heart of branding is a brand, whether it's Apple or Coca-Cola or Zoom or Invisible or Radiance or Rad Studios, any of these have at their essence something beyond the name. It's There's like a feeling that you're trying to evoke. There's a belief system. There's a history. There's a lot there. And if there's nothing there, then it's ultimately a weak brand. And so a great brand is like a flag. People historically have been willing to die for a cause, die for their country, die for their religion. And those sorts of deep loyalties, deep beliefs, when you look at the symbol of the symbol of the thing that you care about more than yourself. And that for, for people today, it just if you're listening, think about that cause or that organization or that belief system, which you care about more than yourself, which you think after you die, you hope it's still here and you hope it, it, it's still here in your children's generation and your children's generation. That thing has a symbol and that symbol is its brand. And that brand has to do with more than the name, more than the symbol. It's evoking something in the depths. And the, the line from the West is from Heraclitus, which is all things follow from the word. We do use words. Words are so powerful, but words are ultimately symbols. Just like a visual symbol, a word is a different kind of symbol. And so when we do this design work of creating symbols and attaching them to words and creating meanings around them, what we're trying to do is connect to the soul, our own soul and the soul of the people that are, that are responding to it. And, and that connection where you actually remember something, you have feelings for it, it moves you beyond a transactional realm where it's like, how much does this thing cost? What is what are the unit economics of the thing? And it moves you to a place where it's more like a feeling of companionship, like it, it's, it's a relationship with it, right? So when you have these stories, people are willing, even when they know and they're told by an expert, like a gemologist, that this diamond from some ring company they've never heard of is identical to this Tiffany's diamond, they will pay double for the Tiffany's diamond, even knowing it, they will pay for the brand. There's maybe some economic way of explaining this, but really, ultimately, you have to drop into a level below economics. It's human nature to talk about where, how value is born through relationships. And, and that authenticity is the most valuable thing. The Canva point was just so spot on because you see this all the time, even when you walk through an airport or when you go to most, almost every city I've been to has these brands that somehow look like they've been they're modern brands like they have a modernish design flavor but they are also basically totally soulless it was almost like the same hipster coffee shop just got remixed and it just got remixed with a new logo and like a new like twist but it's the same thing and it's not actually deeply special and yeah i think that's my first comment on brand and then the question is, why does the world need more brands? Why does the world need 
a new take at a design and branding agency? Why does, what do we, in a world where there are so many great designers and so much competition for brand relationships, brand recognition, brand identity, what could we possibly hope to offer that would be like transformative? Because I just don't believe in doing something unless you're going to be great at it, unless you're at least going to attempt to be great at it. I believe in starting out as an amateur as a way of, mm-hmm. way of learning and engaging with the world. But I definitely believe in like always thinking about how do we do this, not just an averagely well, but how do we do this excellently? And the conversation in my mind flows from there, but it flows from the deep need for, for brands we actually care about that filter through all of that noise. Mm. Yeah. And I want to add something to that, which I think uh, Francis would agree with is that good brands have stories. And so I think it's also like to create modern day storytelling, right? As it relates to consumerism. And I think giving some more meaning instead of just buying something and kind of having a story that supports it. Um, And I think that branding is one aspect of Rad Studios, but the way I always consider it, and just to double down on Francis's point, is I, I think of the word mom a lot, right? What is this? This is eight lines in a circle. And yet when I say mom, the depth of emotion that is called up in people, whether it be positive, negative, it's you have emotion. And to Francis's point, like th- those are lines on a piece of paper when you read them, or mm. there's sound waves in the air when you hear them. But again, it evokes so many deep memories. And I think that, again, when Francis said the essence is not the, the thing, <laughs> is not the whole, it's again, I think it's the same with people. Like, what is Ann Dudak? I'm not red lipstick. I'm not a black turtleneck. I'm so much more than that and so many ineffable qualities that I think when you are trying to design a brand or create a brand, because it definitely is a very deep process, I think viewing it like a person and all the depth and storytelling that encompasses a whole person is really what you're trying to call on when you're doing brand design. Yeah. So now let's talk about the entrepreneur's journey. So the entrepreneur is this heroic figure that emerges in the world and looks at this chaotic, beautiful, amazing, complicated, broken, magical, mysterious world and says, I want to create something and offer it to the world and I want to make the world better. And that may be the original sin of the entrepreneur is thinking that anyone can make this world better. But anyways, that is that is the... Both the hubris and the glory of the entrepreneur is thinking, I am going to improve the world. There's a certain messianic mission to, to, to an entrepreneur who is not just doing it for economic reasons, right? If you're just doing it for economic reasons, then good luck. But if you're doing it because you actually have a deep desire to make the world a better place, then you're coming into the world with this foolish but beautiful intention. And then you're probably not a designer as an entrepreneur. And maybe you hire an agency. And maybe they design some, like Anne said, some lines and circles and give it to you and say, here's your brand, here's your name, good luck. And you're probably just going to make the world more like that busy highway with a million signs and more like that 7-Eleven with a million brands. 
you're just going to be another, yet another brand. You're part of the problem suddenly. So if you really want to stand out, you've got to, you're coming, if you're coming from a deep place, you need a design agency that's also coming from a deep place. And that's probably not the sort of work that gets done in a two to four week engagement. And so I'd say the first point for me and with Radiance or with, sorry, with Rad Studios as a model is, is the length of the relationship. How do we build a long-term relationship with our clients where we don't try to solve this, the brand question in a like short-term engagement and then be done with the client, move on to the next client? How do we actually build a long-term relationship with that company and with that entrepreneur and help them carry the ring all the way to Mordor? If the entrepreneur is Frodo in Lord of the Rings, they, they've got a long-term mission. How do we go with them on that journey? And as they evolve, how do we evolve with them? And how do we evolve the brand with them? How do we evolve the message with them? And I think that you think about maybe the Apple logo and you think this hasn't actually changed. The Apple logo might not have changed for a while, but Apple's brand is constantly evolving. And so brand is more than just logo and name. There's a lot more than that. And so I, I think what makes it to, to Anne's point about 10,000 hours the 10,000 hours and the need for the 10,000 hours aren't going away. What's shifting is like where the hours are going. So in the same way that I just don't, no matter how good your branding agency is, no matter how much you spend in a short-term engagement, I just don't believe an iconic brand can be born in a one or a two-month engagement, no matter how much money you spent. It just can't. A great brand is born through many years of of. creating a story that is the company and expressing that story as well as it can and investing a symbol with meaning through action. And that is the journey that we want to be a part of. And so the first business model move here is just time, length of time. Structure of the relationship changes as you move from a short-term transactional relationship. Short-term transactional relationships result in short-term transactional brands. Long-term authentic relationships result in long-term authentic brands. And so that's if that's a contrarian thought, that's probably the first contrarian thought here that I think motivated both Anne and I. Yeah, and I think that time is taken out of the design equation a lot. And my background is in architecture. And seeing architecture gain meaning through time is, again, something we're very mm-hmm. familiar with. And this could be runes or it could be when does a house become a home kind of concept. And so I think that I wholeheartedly agree with Francis that factoring time back in to the design equation, I think, is a massive thing that needs to be done truly for the health of our industry. Yeah. Uh, And we had talked about it earlier about how you go to the same coffee shop and it's just a remixed version of the hipster thing. It's also happening with architecture when a big finance company goes and buys some property and they do a remodel and they do the remodel in the same exact way that everybody's doing. And I'm here in Buenos Aires and Buenos Aires is actually a very interesting example because it's not like Mexico City where Mexico City is just being invaded by this sort of hipster aesthetic. Buenos Aires is this very colorful art scene. It might actually have something to do with the inflation here, but there might also be something special about this particular city. So it's not 
but there are examples of it, particularly in the tourist areas where there's just like this coffee shop that it looks exactly like the coffee shop in New York city. That looks exactly like the coffee shop in San Francisco. It looks exactly like the coffee shop in Paris. And so we're, we've entered and are now fully in this world of the commodification of good design. And so where <laughs> are we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where are we going? Are, is that, what is going on here? What, can you explain yeah. how we got here and where we're going? Yeah, we'd need a much longer podcast for that, but I'll try. So I think that, wow. Yeah. History of the world part one. Okay. The first thing is that I'd like to call out is what you said, that design touches every aspect of our, our lives or it should, right? The way your coffee cup is designed, it fits your hand or has a insulation. The way you open doors as you walk into that coffee shop, like the packaging of the coffee, everything is designed. Um, and I think that it's a very easy distinction in architecture. So I think I'll use that as an exa example where a lot of what people call architecture is actually construction. And construction is not an art form. And architecture is an art form. And I think mm -hmm. that that the distinction is very prevalent, especially like you said, Stuart, when you see rapid development in urban areas, that's construction. And very rarely are you going to get moments of art and architecture in that type of development. And so what I would challenge people to do in their daily lives is understanding that distinction as it applies to all forms. So product design, what is really just constructed for commodification and what is designed well? Mm -hmm. And I think that once you start paying attention and you use your entire life as essentially a, a learning exercise for understanding and realizing good design, you will find it and you will also find how much is not well designed as you move through your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we've been talking about brand. We've been talking about art. We've been talking about construction, architecture, all these different things. So now let's move into AI and what specifically AI is doing to Rad Studios and where that, what role that plays in. AI and Rad Studios. Yeah. So my point of view is the genesis is that any designer that's listening and probably not designers have seen the articles, which are like, it's the end of architects. It's the end of designers. And we all know they're clickbait, but they are very extremist and alarmist. And I was like, that is silly. It's just like certifiably nonsense in my mind. But what that did is it, it pushed me to define my own relationship with AI. And I would tell every designer, every artist to go through that experience. And the, the result may be that I have no relationship with AI. It doesn't affect my work. It doesn't affect how I go about my work. But I think having a conscious relationship with AI and always iterating on that relationship is going to be the new standard for how artists and designers exist uh, in today's world. And what I determined to be my relationship with AI was a lot of what we talked about, that I can iterate on ideas faster with AI. And my 
I thought again was, how do I not just use this as a tool that affects one person doing design work, but how do I build it up into a process that could have compounding effects for a studio? And I saw the potential there to really unlock and restructure studios and firm culture because we now have this tool. For me, it was revolutionary, but not actually in the way we design. It was revolutionary in how we get to structure the firms, design firms. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, go for it, Francis. Uh, it's not just a single tool. Unless you believe we're going to live in a world where there's one technology company in the future, it's the AI company, and they, they sell everyone AI, and that's it. It is tools, plural. And that single insight actually is behind the invisible business model and the same thing with Radiance. Invisible integrates something like 300 different tools and also 500 different specialists into an end solution that integrates all of it. And that's what's very powerful. I think for design, it's going to be a similar thing. There are going to be many tools, video production tools, image creation tools, tools for even audio creation tools, basically every sort of production of the original raw materials of experience. And then, and then also tools for distribution that relate to distribution uh, of these images on the internet, feedback gathering tools. There's so many, as you think about the stack, like how do people can create content, distribute content and consume content and drive a feedback loop across those things? There, there's going to be innovation across the stack. And, and then there's the stack that Anne is talking about of all the core, the networking of minds uh, that exists inside of a firm, right? If you live in a world of a solo designer that has to do all the things in the stack, then you live in a world where technology is creating the return of the generalist. Um, and that is something that is increasingly happening. That's and, and, and that's a trend that we should watch. But in the same way that like Anne would say, it's verifiably nonsense that architects are going away or designers are going away. I think it's verifiably nonsense that generalists are going away. It's also verifiably, verifiably nonsense that specialists are going away. There will yeah. continue to be specialists in the future. And so if there are specialists in the future and they're using increasingly specialized tools, there's also going to be a need for a platform that networks them all together into a studio. And that studio will be the whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. And so with Invisible, we were, we looked at services companies, traditional services companies like Accenture that don't run their entire operations on a single technology platform. And we are a services company that runs all of our operations on a single technology platform that integrates other technologies and builds its own technology. So we're constantly upgrading our own platform, integrating more platforms into it and upgrading all the processes inside of it. So it's a, um, it is a sort of business machine that we're upgrading. Whereas a traditional services company is just a bunch of humans using third-party tools in an ad hoc way. There's, it's not a machined business model. Invisible's business model is machined in that way. In the same way, there's an opportunity to do this for branding and design agencies. There are very large ones. We should mention them like Gensler and Architecture, huge design agency. There's IDEO, which sort of co-invented the mouse with Apple and Frog Design. I don't know if uh, there's Pentagram. I don't know if, Anne, you have any that you want to mention. But there are these large multi-billion dollar design agencies in the world that are 20th century companies that 
are basically running their company on a day-to-day basis just by using whatever third-party stack that the world has handed to them. Like they're using Microsoft Office. They're using, they're using Figma. They're integrating, they're buying tools, but they're not building, they're not technology companies and they're not building their own stack from the bottom up and, and machining their whole business model. And so that is, that's part of our opportunity. And then the other part of our opportunity is um, in the specific product lines that we're introducing. And I don't know if you want to walk the audience through the spe- our initial offerings and then maybe some of the offerings we want to build. But if you actually look at the things that we're offering there uh, already, they're all enabled. And that the, the, this is a moment of disruption where things that used to cost large amounts of money can now be offered for less. And that puts design studios in a bind where Blockbuster versus Netflix, Blockbuster has these heavy costs, their stores, the people working in those stores, their price point for a movie to rent a movie. And then Netflix comes in and says no fees and the price point is 50% off because we have a different cost structure. Blockbuster sees Netflix's move and even if real, even if Blockbuster realizes it's a threat, can't do anything because switching would destroy its existing revenue. That's more or less the same position that large design firms are in and why they are scared of AI is because they can't actually switch without destroying their existing pricing and their existing revenue and their existing cost structure. And so it's a perfect moment for a new entrant like us to just come after, come out with product after product after product. So we can innovate both on the level of what is a design firm? How does a design firm work? Can a design firm actually be a true service company and a true technology company? That's the first level of innovation. And the second level of innovation, which is one derivative out, is innovating on the offerings themselves. So design firms offer A, B, and C. A, B, and C can all now be done at a far lower price point that that traditional design firms literally can't compete with. It would destroy their companies. And you want to walk through the product. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing is we have, I'm going to talk quickly through maybe a couple examples, but the fundamental goal of Radiance is to solve design problems. And so I think that there's just an open door on what design problems we're solving. And so I'm going to give three quick examples that show sort of the breadth of what we're hitting and kind of the industries that we're touching in solving these design problems. So the first one is brand book creation. And this, we realize that there are a lot of companies where traditional branding, which can be thirty to $50,000, is just out of their reach. And so we thought, what if we create a system where we gather a group of experts, they talk to the client, and these experts, branding experts, define the input parameters of the brand that they believe is appropriate for the client. And then through those input parameters, we've automated a process that essentially automatically creates a brand book in Figma by running through these input parameters. And I think there's two aspects there. One, you have experts on your project, right? Again, the, the time you're paying for is a group of experts, 10-year-plus designers to sit with you in a meeting and get to the heart of your company and then define it in the way that they know how, which is through brand. 
And so with that, we've been able to dramatically reduce the cost, kind of the starting cost of a brand book to be around 10K. And we're looking for ways to bring that down further, again, so that we can get companies that can't traditionally afford branding in these big firms without reducing quality, which I think is always the main, the, the underlying statement of Rad Studios. It's never a reduction on quality, always an increase on quality from the standard. Mm-hmm. The second one is I was talking to actually a few script writers and filmmakers, and their difficulty was that nobody reads scripts anymore. And so how do you sell a script? And furthermore, is it effective to write an entire script or is it better to pitch a concept? And so we're developing essentially storyboarding that would help pitch scripts and sell scripts uh, in the film industry. And third product is for, I'll take retail brands as an example. They have in-house design departments for their store locations, their physical locations. And these in-house design departments, they don't have an AI expert. And usually they have low-lift technology. And so how do they iterate quickly on ideas, right? Like how do they get something visualized, get it in front of their president, get thoughts, iterate, move fast kind of thing in this very competitive retail market? And so we're working with a client to do just that quickly iterate on design renderings for exterior and interior architecture that allows them to, one, really wow their their board and their executive team, and also allows them a freedom that they didn't have before, which is to see their own designs quickly iterated on for low cost. And from those examples, you can see we've hit architecture, the film industry, and brand design. And we're solving different problems for each one. And again, on each one, we have the experts. We have a network of experts that we essentially call in to advise on projects or act as leads on design leads on projects as needed. Again, you're not paying for the overhead of keeping this massive network of experts in-house. You're really paying for us to pull the right expert into your project at the right time and really effectively utilize their input. And, and again, that's across a multiplicity of industries. Very cool. Thanks. <laughs> it's, I love doing these episodes because it's, <laughs> if I didn't do this episode, I would not have that understanding that I do now have about Rad Studios or Lightning <laughs> or all these different ones. This yeah. is a key part of what I'm doing of mapping all these different companies out. And so... I would love to take this into a conversation about, because both for Rad Studios and for Cosmos, our first client has been Invisible. And we've been doing this for Invisible, but the key economic indicator that both of us need in order to prove that we're actually doing something is to be able to charge for our services. Uh, And we can't currently charge Invisible due to the internal structure. And so now we're looking to go and find external customers. And finding external customers for a tech-enabled services uh, is a is an interesting thing because when we're talking about things and we're finding customers, we're trying to find that right relationship that can expand and 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 we're not trying to sell, but we're trying to understand what is the actual problem that we're solving. And so there's this kind of give or take, yin or yang of okay, here's my understanding of the problem you as this business owner is having. Is that an accurate assumption? And then we get that, and then we're able to nail a little bit closer into what exactly the problem is and whether the solution that we're proposing and that we already have evidence that we're solving actually 
is the right solution. And so Francis, I would really love to understand how that worked for Invisible at like back in 2015, 2016, that first customer, how did that happen? Within the first two weeks of Invisible's existence, we had uh, five clients paying us $10,000 a month. And they were, which shocked me, by the way, I wasn't sure if there was going to be demand for what we were doing. It was a $10,000 a month unlimited service for executive support. So we'd create an invisible assistant for you. You can name yours, whatever you want. Wonder Woman, Superman. I named mine John Keats after the dead poet. And you could delegate to Keats behind the scenes. There was a team of humans. And we pitched that to all the, to basically all the CEOs in my network and five of them, which were personal friends of, of mine that I really admired and respected, uh, said, I would love that. And they were using it within the first six months. They were using it so aggressively that we were spending $20,000 a month for every 10K a month we were getting. So we, we burned through all of our angel capital and, uh, and had to pause the service. And then we bootstrapped for one year building around one client. We built 50 processes for that one client and we were able to do that efficiently. And that's when we built the first version of the digital assembly line. And that's when we hired our first agents overseas to run processes. For, so we built the first version of our processes as well. Um, and then we went from there and, and I could continue to tell the story, but the just already pausing with that first chapter of the story, relationship-driven sales. There is a fantasy that I think every entrepreneur has or falls prey to at some point, a temptation, if you will, that at some point they're going to be selling massive volume, like they're going to get millions of dollars or billions of dollars of sales selling to people they've never met that are out there somewhere. And uh, I think that we get that idea from certain brands work that way, like Coca-Cola. I'm sure that like people at Coca-Cola have no idea who's drinking Coke where. It's like they're try they try to get analytics and they try to figure out who their customers are and what they blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the end, there's at the end of the day, there's such a huge distance that exists between product and consumption. And it's just such a mass market thing. Apple is a similar thing where there's people all around the world using those products and, and you don't, when you're making it, you don't necessarily know. But tech enabled services companies, they're just not built that way. Services sales begins with the handshake. It's you, Matt, have this need and you're looking at me and saying, you, Francis, your company should fix this and I'm going to pay you my hard earned money in order to get your expert service. And I could give this harder money to anyone else, but I'm choosing you. And so there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, a lot of karma in the handshake. There's a sort of serious, human, authentic trust that you want to uphold. And it really hurts to let down a client. And when you feel that pain of the client, both the pain of their need and also the pain of the trust, <laughs> you really don't want to fail. And that actually, hopefully, becomes part of the, the culture. And I think that we've maintained that over the years. You would have thought that, okay, I don't know, I, I probably hoped at the time that eight years from now, we'll be totally insulated from relationship-based selling. It'll, we'll just have some sales force. But to this day, Invisible basically doesn't have a sales team. We have a growth team that is still doing this sort of relationship-driven, network-driven, consultative selling, which really doesn't feel like sales. 
it, it feels like us being introduced to people that either we know directly or that are one degree removed. So you're still in the trust network, having conversations with those people about the needs in their business and designing solutions and then getting them to trust us for long enough that we can prove ourselves and then grow from there and expand. And all that expansion is again, built on relationships and trust. So if you think, if one thinks that one can build a large, successful services business without talking to clients or without having relationships drive those sales and, and ultimately being accountable to the trust that's been given to your agency, your firm, good luck. I don't think you'll succeed. <laughs> so the opposite is really the thing that's going to work. And I think, Anne, look at that amazing smile. Anne's got an amazing smile. Who wouldn't want to, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to give Anne an initial check? And so I think that's a key aspect is like, Anne has the charisma that you just want to support her, believe in her, trust her and, and give her that initial check, that initial sale. But also Anne's got the professional credibility having worked her way all the way up through design in school all through to Louis Vuitton. And she can tell her story better than I can, but she's a designer's designer and she's earned that. But she continues week after week to put in the time and the good, honest, hard work that results in like great work and half-ass, <laughs> I gotta say that on a podcast, work where you don't really, what's the sort of polite way of saying that? Throw away work, work that you don't actually put your heart and soul into. Clients can tell, clients can tell. You can't really fake great work. And so if you want to build an agency that is proud of itself and whose client stands by its work and whose clients sing its praises, there's no shortcut. There's no, oh yeah, pretty soon we're going to be selling like hotcakes. We're just going to sell millions of widgets to, I don't know, unknown people who are just like entries in our Stripe account. <laughs> that, that's not how it works. No, what? I, I yeah. agree. And I just want to add something to that. Again, I love selling and pitching Rad Studios because I think it's rad. I think it's radiant. I think it's radical. I think it's freaking awesome. I love it so much. And going back to what Francis said at the beginning, this idea of entrepreneurialism is I do believe that this is better, right? I believe it's better for most people involved in the equation, if not all. And so I love talking about it. So thanks for having me on the podcast where I get to do that. And I think to coming again from architecture, again, I think architecture is so personal to the client. And even when you're designing commercial, like you have to keep the singular individual in your mind at all times. And how are they going to respond? How are they going to move? How are they going to interact? How are they going to feel like just this this mountain of responsibility. And I took that responsibility really seriously as an architect to do just what Francis said, is to be deeply personal with the, the person that maybe I don't know, because a lot of people walk into architecture, but to be deeply personal with the people that would experience this design. And I think that is, again, it's May leads to some personal difficulties in my design work because I can't half-ass. I like mm. need it to be, I need, I can't divorce myself from that sort of deep consideration, but I ultimately think that's what design should do. And so I really try and embody that every day. And I think I'm glad I came up and through architecture where that is a core ethos in my design work.
And what is the main thing that you learned through your career about how to sell design and how will that play into Rad Studios? <laughs> That's a great question. Selling design, it's difficult. Like I think anyone listening who's a designer, I won't sugarcoat it, that selling design is definitely can be a challenge. And I think that I really am considering this question and considering my answer. I think that the best way I've found is education. Like without talking down to somebody, take time in your sales pitch to explain why design is important. And that could be a few sentences. It could be 3% of the time you spend in your selling. But I think that conveying why things matter is really a great place to start. And then I've also found that, and I think any designer will tell you this, that you don't dump design on people's laps, right? Design is a journey and it should be presented as such. And so start with why this matters and then start and then move into the journey that you did through your process. And that's research, that's competition research, that's demographic research, that's all of these different things through to your first iteration and how it was terrible and what you learned and then where you went after that. And again, these things don't have to take a lot of time. They can be structured and condensed very easily. But I think that I would start with importance and move through process. And then you've geared everyone up to receive the final design result. And, and I think that's the probably the best way to bring people literally and figuratively into your design work. And so what does it look like? So you explain what matters, why it's important, then you bring them through the journey that you created. And I do want to go into that, what that feels like, because I know it from the entrepreneurial angle, but I want to understand what it feels like to birth something new and all the stress and the creativity and the like everything that goes into that, that spark that created something that never had existed before. But first I want to ask, what does it look like when somebody decides to buy it? versus doesn't buy it? And is there a lot of wiggling? Is there a lot of wavering? What happens in that, in that period? Yeah, I think that the way that I would view it is not buy it or don't buy it as an end point. The belief with design is that you're never finished. You ultimately just run out of time. And so I think that if I come to the end of a sales pitch and they are not, not completely sold on it, that's your time allocation for that day. But that doesn't mean that the design work ends there. And it doesn't mean that client is lost. It means that you actually need to go back and probably iterate mm -hmm. a little bit more to get to where they want to be. And so I think with design, I would never say you've sold it or you haven't sold it. Because even when you sell it, you're not done to and so I think I would look at them in the long continuum of that process of iteration rather than a, an end point or a specific point. Yeah. It goes back to that services thing. And it's the same, they're probably going to be the same thing. Well, I already know it from Invisible. It's just that that's just the initial period where you've figured out that this is actually a good fit relationship. And then there are a whole bunch more after that as well. And it's so radically different to the SaaS model or even the consumer startup model which is just, let's make this the most general thing possible and then sell it and then add on little features that kind of serve this little thing 
Whereas it comes back to an almost like mad men, the mad men thing of 1960s, like we're all selling and we're all, although with a lot, with in a totally remote environment with no alcohol and all those different things. Francis, anything to say, or should we go into this? And I know both of you this very intimately of this creation process. Anything you want to say before we dive into the stress of creating something and the fun of, of creating something new? Yes. I want to say that Rad Studios is your co-founder, your design co-founder. And Invisible is your operations co-founder. Yeah, 100%. And so on and so forth with all of our business businesses. Like Cosmos is your knowledge, knowledge management co-founder. Yeah. yeah. And, and these companies at their best are capable of building a relationship with you at inception and growing with you all the way throughout your business journey and designing it and pricing in such a way that they're always appropriate for whatever the stage. So it will take us, it's dangerous for startups to sell to startups in the beginning. It's almost like the definition of a bubble. You alluded to that, Stuart, in the beginning. The dangerous thing with Infinity would just be all the companies trade with each other and they don't trade with the outside world. So it's important that they trade with the outside world and, and can become profitable agencies. But once Rad Studios has a strong balance sheet and is profitable, it will start taking risks on startups and looking for ways of, of uh, aligning incentives with equity uh, in companies we believe in. So we're not we're going to be selective and not just take any clients and, and really think about our client portfolio as our investment portfolio. But that, but the, the even the way that we're pricing an engagement is not designed, as I mentioned earlier, it's not it's not a short term engagement. Like we really want to build long term engagements, and that I think is where great work comes from. I'm very skeptical about, to name a few companies outside of the design world, McKinsey, Bain, BCG, these business models are designed around short-term and extremely expensive, highly scoped engagements. And while there are some problems that arise in business that are appropriate for this sort of engagement, it's like we do have a huge problem. We're willing to spend a ton of money on it. It needs to be solved in a short amount of time. And we need an external expert. Okay, great. That's what those companies exist for. But most problems, in my experience, are interconnected with lots of other problems. So they're not highly scoped. They're entangled. They don't get solved quickly. And you need an economic, you, you need economic pricing. You need pricing that isn't massively punishing you for hiring them as a vendor instead of hiring them as a teammate. Otherwise, you're just going to default to building all these functions in-house. So the futuristic company, the company of the future, I think is a much smaller company. It doesn't have a huge operations department. It doesn't have a huge design department. It doesn't have a huge knowledge management department. You just go through. It doesn't have a huge hiring department. All of these departments, hopefully, will just be one or two or three people and then an outside firm that's the partner. For operations, it'd be invisible. For design, it would be Rad Studios, et cetera. So that's, that's the way we're thinking about services in the future. Very interesting. Yeah. So I just did a interview with one of the invisible advisors, Rachel Rimsky, who, who was helping a lot with Con Cosmos yesterday. And we did an interview about how the business of biotech works. And that's exactly the way that it works. You have a small team that's really focused on R and D and then everything else is outsourced to consultants, um, until you get to a later stage. And then once you get past the FDA regulation, then you start to build in-house uh, things. But everything before that stage is all does exactly what you said, which is fascinating. And I think there's something to it. And anything you want to add? 
No, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about biotech. It's cool. Yep. Okay, so let's go into the this question that's been on my mind for ever since 2018. I started my podcast, which was, what is the relationship between stress and creativity? And what's, what role does, does stress play in, in birthing something that, that does not exist? And we can get into all sorts of metaphors about the mother and the father and like how that plays into it. But Anne, I want to hear it from a design angle of like, how do you take all of these images? Is it a psychedelic process? Do you see in, in, with images? Do you see in images or do you have a mind that works more in terms of words? What's your kind of, how do you visualize these things? What, how does it create? Yeah. So my mind does work in images. I don't know if it was always that way. I was talking to a friend of mine who's an architect and we just talk about our cursed brains all the time. I think that it's, a, it's also a learned thing because it's what you are surrounding yourself and considering all day, every day. Um, let's see, creation. And I think, I think, I guess if I was to start this, I would say that, um, we don't need to think of creation as a companion of stress or stress as a companion of creation. <laughs> I think that, um, if you do, that's also, that's a huge bar to actually making something right. And I have had to myself out of that mindset many times in my career because I think it's a common one where I just start making ugly stuff and I think it's a quote from Willem Dafoe where he would think in his head and maybe sometimes do on set he's what's the worst way I could deliver this line what's the worst thing I can do right and he would do it and then he's oh okay cool now everything's gonna be better than that and I think that for me, when I find stress as a constant companion to my creativity and my creation, I just start making stuff with no intention, no rubric, no plan, no vision. And maybe it turns out super ugly and maybe it turns out to be something cool. And you know what? Both are great. And I think having that freedom of exploration is almost childlike, right? And they say that you don't learn creativity, you just unlearn creativity. And I think that if you approach making things the same way that a child does, if you're an adult and you want to start making things, then you would get pretty far. And I think like when, I don't want to oversimplify that, because I, I also want to talk about this entrepreneurial journey that I'm on. And I had to come to another relationship with creativity and stress when it comes to making a business versus mm -hmm. a building mm -hmm. or a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. And I think I decided somewhere that I also wanted this to be a joyful experience, right? Again, I'm pumped to talk about this. I want to talk about it. It makes me happy too. I think it's awesome. And so I also want to bring that perspective of joyful creation to even creating a business. And I don't want that to sound naive in any way. Like I know there's difficulties and I know you need to have structures and plans and all things like that. But I think approaching those things with joy and approaching like system creation for joy is, um, is like a really nice way to look at it. And I find that it also contributes to longevity. If you associate creation with joy, then you're going to want to do it. If you associate it with stress, you're absolutely not going to want to do it. And that's what Keith Raboy. So I interviewed Keith Raboy, who's a, fa a famous startup in investor, and he gave me this book called The Upside of Stress. 
We did a whole interview about how he does high intensity interval training, which is the one of the most stressful things. Is, but he loves it. He loves the stress. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, but I'm definitely, and I think Francis may agree with this. I'd be very curious to turn this question back on Francis. But, but I find that your attitude is exactly right, which is that there's the grind set. And sometimes you do have to grind. And sometimes you don't want to do yeah. the things that you don't want to do. And there's that stress. But that's not it a sustainable way to live your life or or what way to create joy and great beauty and all these different things that just and i think this whole startup grind set mindset thing can definitely go through a new evolution particularly now that we have the 24 7 grinder named ChatGPT at our hands at any moment and which can grind away and we don't need to do that anymore and then now it's about that purity of thought and the purity of beauty and translating that into the world francis what's your take there's a time and a place there's definitely a time to grind. There are battle moments. If you think you can build a great company with no battle and no stress, good luck. <laughs> all, power, all power to you, be my guest. But that being said, I think that one should aspire to the state of mind that Anne is talking about, which is lighthearted, free, joyful. And that is the almost like a child at play. That is where real magic happens. And there's a bit of Many years ago, I was introduced to Tony Robbins and he invited me to come down and do one of his things. And he does the walking on the coals thing. And part of the secret to walking on the coals is thinking that you're in a frozen tundra and you're walking on ice, right? You, you do this mental game of the, the more painful it is, the more you're like spring and roses and rainbows and sunsets. So you're just, you develop this power in the mind to, to shift your state. Meditation is helpful with that. And actually, this is why I have a practice around the liberal arts in general, whether it's going to museums or going to gardens. And I have walked around the New York Botanical Gardens before and just it's important to be with flowers and to look at, to look at, spend time in nature. Um, if you don't create these practices in your life, then you don't really have any spiritual material to draw on when you really, when it does really get dark and tough, right? It's the Zen mind is really impressive in battle. It's much less impressive when you're at the picturesque lake meditating and without any mosquitoes biting you. And you're just in a somehow like this perfect, your external reality is perfect. Your internal reality is perfect. That's amazing. You should get there. You should do that so that when your external reality is very imperfect, your internal reality can stay perfect. That's, that's the real challenge. And do I have anything to add? To that about having fun <laughs> i i think that um culturally i think invisible is still fighting to retain some innocence the more the, the bigger you get as a company the more everything becomes economically determined right what are the incentives what are the prices what, what who are the competitors and then it becomes competitors inside the company. Like you're fighting for promotion and there's a limited number of slots. And so it's like an up or out thing. And law firms are not known for particularly great cultures, right? So for this reason, neither are investment banks. So there's the, there's this concern at services companies and then, and then there's external competition. And so there's this, you can very quickly get this jungle survival culture. That's the law of the jungle. The law of the garden is much better than the law of the jungle. And it's we are in a garden. Safe. Like civilization itself is a garden. We're not in a state garden. of nature. We're in a garden. Like all those coffee shops that we're talking about, that's pure garden. 
I've got this beautiful garden next to me that Carlos Tais developed, an Argentine guy. Just beautiful garden that rivals anything you see in, in Paris. Um, and it's just such a beauty to walk through that and these sculptures and the, and it's, that's what we're living in. It's not the nature. I've tried to get out into nature and tried to live that, like that isolated life out on my own inside of nature, but there's no more bears left. There's no more tigers left. Like it just doesn't exist anymore. The humans have conquered it all. And every, everywhere you go, there's a, it's a nature, it's a garden. It's not the nature. And, and you were talking about invisible and fighting to retain that innocence. And it's been so interesting last month or so as we've been doing these episodes every week, because I'm really starting to see it because we're still involved with invisible and that, that black hole that's happening at invisible, that's just everything is, is moving towards like, how do we become more operationally efficient? How do we do it? There's so much demand. And then infinity, I'm now back in my favorite place, which is to, to be in this creating order out of this initial chaos and, and creating something that doesn't exist anymore. And I've found my innocence again after being sucked into this raging machine that's beautiful. Yeah. And it's really, really, uh, someday uh, Cosmos yeah. will also be a raging machine, right? It's yeah, just the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I want to get there, but I don't want to get there on someone else's machine. I want to create the conditions for it myself. And, uh, and then I can have a more long-term, I think that would have been really hard to be a part of invisible because it's just such a different environment, uh, than the one I'm used to, but. Yeah. Anything to say on that? Any reflections from you, Anne? Any, anything to say in terms of like how infinity ha is? And, and it's allowing the, the innocence to seep back into invisible as well, because now there's like another option. And that if you don't want that large machine, you can go play in, in, in this like early stage thing, which for some people is really much better than the, the later stage thing. Anybody, any thoughts? I, I have a quick reaction. So the original name for Rad Studios was Radiance, and then Anne decided to rebrand it Rad Studios, which I support, and it's a great name. It's an iconic studio name. But the all the Infinity names are like in, Invisible is a, is a good example. They're abstract, but very powerful, transcendent concepts. And Radiance is, in Farsi, my mother's tongue, there's a phrase, Cheshme Shoma Roshan, which means your eyes are shining. When you see somebody, uh, you have a beautiful smile, Stuart. So when you see someone smile, their eyes start to shine and like they, their face becomes radiant. And that is part of like human charisma is actually you can see so much through the eyes, through the smile, through the face. And when Anne talks about the state of mind being in a joyful state of mind when you design, any creative person knows that. And invisible is efficiency culture because invisible is selling efficiency. And operations is not necessarily a radiant state of mind. It's an invisible state of mind. It's all about removing inefficiencies and, and reducing the space between things. But the idea with radiance or anything that's rad is that it's, you have to be in a state of beauty and joy to create. You just have to be. And so somewhere on that spectrum between the jungle and the garden, is the healthy place. If you go way too far in the garden, you're too protected, too safe, too far from the world. You're not making an impact. If you go so far in the jungle, you also become wild and you become a tiger. And the, the when we talk about design, and I started our conversation on branding with this beautiful landscape image and talking about how beautiful nature is. Nature is the jungle. Nature is wild. But human design is always has something of the garden in it moves you a little bit out of the wilderness and a little bit into civilization, but a civilization in its ideal sense, not in its sort of like corrupt sense. And, and so I think that I hope that we maintain that 
that spirit, the spirit of radiance that's evoked by that name and, and all the other meanings of rad, everything of rad has that quality. I think you brought up a really great point where I talked at the beginning about these articles that were like the death of design through AI. And I think what they viewed design as is a process that lacked efficiency. And that's what AI was bringing to it. Mm-hmm. And for me, design doesn't need to be efficient. It can be, it cannot be. It, it's not really like a large factor, frankly, in, in design work. And so what I see as a possibility for AI an invisible's technology is to make all the things that are peripheral and associated with design work, maximizing efficiency. And what that does is it just frees up more space for designers to be in that creative mindset. It takes like the pressing weight of production or a timeline or a budget and kind of like lessens that weight on designers so that they actually have a better, more creative mindset in order to work. And so, again, I think that the idea of AI affecting artistry, affecting design, it's not making those processes necessarily more efficient. What it's actually doing is making every process that surrounds those things more efficient and therefore set up almost protecting the kind of inherent lack of efficiency that kind of comes through exploration, right? And design is ultimately exploration. Hmm. So design, exploration, inefficiencies, companies, how does the traditional design studio work? I'll talk about architecture studios, but you've seen like back before computers were used in drawing, you've seen the pictures of dozens and hundreds of men leaning over designs and drawing. And so that was it. You had producers. Producers were the main bulk of any firm. And then you pyramided up to the designer, right? Lead designer, partner designer, whatever it may be. And that structure has never been innovated. And Mm. so with the technology coming into specifically architecture design firms, they still function in the same hierarchy and with the same structure where you have a lot, the main body of the studio is is essentially production. And then you have high-level thinkers and high-level designers. And so again, that's where I see room for innovation is to redo the structure of design firms, again, so that we can increase the quality of product and make these things more accessible. Can we make this real? So Anne has built like eight brands in the last four months. This is not normally possible. So how did you do it? Like with basically no resources. <laughs> uh, a lot of great partners. Like I said, we <laughs> have streamlined the, the kind of process to identify exactly where humans are needed in the kind of creation and specifically in a brand creation process. So it starts by stepping the process, outlining the process, defining where you need human input and where you don't. And then utilizing a whole slew of AI tools, to Francis's point, this is not one all-encompassing AI. This is, these are systems that we've built that link together mostly several types of AI and AI platforms. And through that, we were able to quickly but effectively create 
these the first iteration of these brands, right? And yeah, it was having these experts that I called upon for input and then having these kind of process outlines that utilize the AI tools. And that that's really it. I wish it was more complicated, but it's not. <laughs> And we could give this some color as well, because I got an intimate look into this with the Cosmos brand. And earlier, Francis commented, I think it was last night, that the specific logo that you gave us, it has the potential to be iconic. And it really is a great logo. And I wish I could show it to the listeners. Uh, but essentially, it's a uh, a little circle with part of the, the and then a square and then part of the square is fit to the make the circle. Uh, and so it show and like Cosmos, the brand is all about taking all of these disparate pieces of software, disparate files and folders, and then combining them into a way that takes no effort from the people who are very busy at their jobs trying to actually do operations and do this really demanding task. And they don't want to be dealing with learning a new piece of software. And so we're essentially like creating this. Can you talk more about how you came up with that? I know in our process, I, you asked me for things, you asked me for competitors, you asked me for what it was like, you sat me down and you, you basically interviewed me on what it is that Cosmos really is. Can you talk more about that process that you do? Yeah. And I, I think that really is it. So the founder feels deeply, strongly, and has a pervasive understanding of their business. And their business, you want it to become the brand. And so what you need to do is really sit down with the people responsible for growing it, making it, building it, and get to the heart of why they're doing it, right? Because again, the brand is not sort of superficial qualities or even product offerings. It's the very deep ethos that drives for drives the business and drives the people inside the business. And so I think that when you sit down for kind of these kickoff meetings, inter company interviews, however you want to phrase it, it's really an emotional conversation, right? And you want to really drill into what are we trying to evoke with certain people? And for Stuart, I think it was peace of mind, clarity, and the idea that complicated things can become simple. And if you take those core ideas, you could quickly see where the Cosmos logo comes from. And so I think it's that. It's not getting too caught up in, in any specific offering or, or any kind of, like I said, aspect of the company, but drilling down into the heart. And I think that for logo design specifically, a lot of the AI generators that you'll see will spit out these very complicated logos, right? Mm. And mm -hmm. they're visually interesting only because there's so much detail that your eye needs to explore, but they aren't visually deep. And I think that part of what you learn in those 10,000 hours is how to take things away from your designs and still retain that core message and that core emotional conveyance to the person receiving it. But yeah, I think it's about really getting at the heart of what you want to evoke in people. And again, the business owner knows that best because they're building a company around it and I'm just playing off of it. That's very interesting. I'd like to bring Francis into the next question, which is when I first started my first business in 2012, I had no idea that I was creating something, but that creation wasn't me. 
I was totally codependent with the creation that I had created. And there was no separation between me and the business. And that's a very common thing. I recognize that's not just me. And how, and, and Francis doesn't really matter who goes to this next part, but how do you deal with that? And how do you make that clear in the business as well? Because that logo that you created, although it has an aspect of my understanding and my particular advantages for starting Cosmos, because it comes from something that I'm very good at, like, how do you navigate that line of creating something that's not necessarily the business, but not necessarily the founder, but it's like this strange mix that will change over time. That's a great question. <laughs> There's That's a lot. really interesting question. Yeah. There's a lot we can say about that. Nominative determinism. Names become destinies. So I've done an, a word study on my full name and each, my first name, my middle name, my last name all have etymological meanings and together they produce a meaning and it feels a little bit almost like astrology. This is, it makes you wonder which of the two things occurred. Did I become who I am and that it was just an accident that my name matches that? Or am I just reading into the name, my own story? Or was it that I was named a certain way and then I became, because I was carrying that name, the name drove me in a certain direction. Like what would have happened? Like from a, from a very CFO way of thinking, a very sort of financial way of thinking, if, if Apple was named Pear, like it would still be, it would still be Apple. It would still be the most valuable company in the world. We'd just be living in this weird parallel universe in which it was named Pear. And I'm definitely not of that way of thinking. <laughs> I definitely do believe that there is power in the names. And this goes back to the very first job of any human ever, according to mythology, Adam in the garden. Adam is sitting there naming things. You're a cow. You're a tree. This sort of this is the basic first, the very first human was a branding agency. <laughs> um, and in most magical traditions, there is, there is ma magic understood to exist in the words of ancient languages and in the naming of things. Like it's part of uh, uh, family lineages will carry like a name. I, I've been listening to some Native American myths and they, there's a famous scene where the father gives the son his name and calls him crazy horse. And his, his whole identity comes from that, that he he's said to be a thunder dreamer and thunder dreamers are supposed to always do the unexpected thing. And so he's always doing the unexpected thing in every part of his life. So I think that you're talking about identity entanglements, right? Like the Francis identity and the invisible identity, those need to be different things but they're, they're ultimately ha are historically intertwined, currently intertwined. And that, that intertwining is such that even if I ran away, like even if I resigned, so this is a big turning point for me in thinking about this is that even if I abandoned invisible and ran away and went to the farthest part of the earth and changed my name, invisible would still be in some weird way linked to me. And anything that I ever did, if I ever reemerged in society, it would get traced back. Like you can't actually hide from these connections. They're just too deep. It's, it's almost like having a child. So you have these famous stories of the child is, didn't grow up with their parents, was an orphan or whatever. And then they find out that their father, their biological father is still alive. Their biological mother is still alive. And they go and find that person no matter where they are, because there's some sort of an inherent meaning that they need to resolve. 
But every true parent wants their child to become better than them and to exist independently of them. And every wise person realizes that ultimately they're immortal and they're going to die and they're ephemeral. And so the best you can do is leave something behind that outlasts you. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's so much, so much in the question you asked. That's just a quick sketch of my, where my mind goes. You can't be so attached to your company that if it failed, you would consider yourself a failure, but you are just inherently attached to it. You're giving it your life force and you're hoping that it transcends you and becomes its own thing and outlasts you. you and when that, that giving of life is so much like parenting that you actually can't, once it's in the world, you're never really going to be very separate from it. Yeah, well, what does it feel like now to have created this giant operations machine company that's awesome and it's taking over the AI training world and the AI enablement world? What does it feel like to have that be, com I'm not completely out of your control, but to have so much control and influence in the beginning and then now not? First of all, this is something that any uh, CEO founder realizes that even when you have full control, on every level, legal control and operational control, you actually don't have control, especially when humans are involved. Like the, the basic organizational model for a services company is to find the most incredible talent, align their incentives with you and build a shared myth and shared like business model. But if the talent is, the better the talent is, the more independently minded it is. <laughs> so it's, they say that making a, a great hire is somebody who's better than you, at least, at least one thing. And so you hire a bunch of people that are better than you and that's success. And so you've hired a bunch of strong alpha females, alpha males, and a bunch of strong alphas who are like independently minded, have their own ideas about everything. And then you wonder why it's so difficult to like, what's going on, make decisions and steer the thing. And it's just because it's no longer a motorbike. It's an aircraft carrier. It's this big, heavy thing. And it doesn't mean that it can't be influenced. It doesn't mean it can't be steered. But it just means most people that are in power don't actually have as much power as you think. Let's take the CEO of Amazon. Do you think the CEO of Amazon knows every detail about how goods are handled in warehouses? No. It would destroy him. It would destroy him. It's literally not possible. Like I can't even keep up with my email inbox. That's how hard it's getting, right? To keep up with the amount of information flows. So it's not, it's literally not possible for the CEO of a company as big as Amazon to understand his own company. They have some sort of simplified map, a simplified mental model of what's going on that's sufficient for them to make decisions at their level. The same thing with the president of the United States. The president of the United States has no idea what's going on. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has no idea what's going on in the military. We are always, we build these, Human civilization is actually the creation of these very large organizations that allow for abstraction and decision-making to occur at very high levels, even though you're very far from all the details. And there's both great power in that, also great danger in that. There's also great humility in that, where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for this whole thing. And I actually don't feel like I have a lot of options on my menu. I don't have a lot of buttons I can press. So let me upgrade the buttons I do have. Let me press the ones that I'm sure I should press and not press the ones I shouldn't press. And yeah. And I, I used to play video games as a kid. These video games make it very clear what buttons you can press. They, they give you an interface and they give you a map and they give you a representation of reality. The hard part about building a company is that 
there is no interface and there are no clear buttons presented to you. The game, it's 4D chess or something, but exists in your head. So your ability to create the game and to understand the levers you can pull and to sometimes discover a new lever or sometimes realize that you're, you, the lever you thought was there is actually not there. That is part of the game. That's why the game is so hard and so interesting. Yeah, I feel a lot of the same way. I think when the original question, again, I, I thought of it through my architecture experience, right? Like I've designed and made buildings. And the way that I view it is like, those are of me, but they're not me. And I think that, I guess, provides the distance, enough distance for a level of objectivity that allows for you to take feedback, but also I think allows other people to take the design and make it what it is, right? Because in architecture, you can design the most perfect building and it doesn't mean diddly squat if no one enters it. And so the architecture is made by the people using it. And in that way, it's very, it's meaning is not something I can apply apply to it. It's something that only other people can give to it. And I think when and I view, I see a lot of similarity between these organizational structures and Fran, what Francis is talking about and architecture, because one of the first design mistakes you make in architecture when you're beginning is you use the phrase, I want people to do this when mm. they go into my building. And you create this elaborate, almost cinematic move through a space. Now, humans do not do what you think you're going to sure. do. Like, Never. they just will not. Yeah, if there's a path, someone's going to cut a corner. And that's the beauty of humanity. But what you do is what we realize, what I realized through my career and what I started to design for later in commercial projects is you incentivize people. Same way that Francis is talking about this. You examine how they could move through the space and then you put the staircase at the right spot so they're incentivized to go to the second floor. And I think that's really how I view this as well is you have to design and create the right incentives and the right structure so that people can bring meaning to what you have made. And, and part of that is to expand it beyond what you alone could have done. So I think there's a lot of similarities with how you view architecture and how Francis is talking about building a company. It reminds me of this trek that I've been on for the past probably 15 years, sometimes a literal trek. When I first started my first company in 2012, we found an investor who was from India and he brought us to Chandigarh, India both me and my co-founder to Chandigarh in India to basically incubate it at a development firm in India, in Chandigarh. And Chandigarh was designed by Le Corbusier. And Le Corbusier is a uh, city planner, architect, artist. And he also designed Brasilia, uh, which is the capital of Brazil. And I haven't been yet been to Brasilia, but I imagine based on my experience in Chandigarh that you feel soulless and lifeless in it because it's designed from the centralized perspective of, oh, I have this beautiful thing, here it is, take it. This is how we, we believe human, humans exist. And that's one city planning way to build cities. 
And then there's another one, which I found in Brazil, in the favelas inside of Brazil, where I had lived in 2010 and 2011, which were completely informal and completely unstructured. And people just put up shacks on a hill and with no structure, no centralization. And both of those are like one too organic, the other one not organic enough. And then I found Curitiba inside of Brazil and Curitiba, and I, somebody described Curitiba as an example of Portland and Portland may also be pretty well designed from this perspective as well, which is the ideal, the Goldilocks position for me and, and a lot of other city planners, they who all look to Curitiba as this prime example of a, of a, of a very well-designed city because it got just enough organization, but not too much and not too little. And it feels that incentive and structure system of designing companies is also the similar type of thing because we're not robots. Although in this rise to technology and AI, a lot of people are trying to compete with the robots, which is a failing game and become more robotic. Like you go to San Francisco and you interact with people and they're just like totally robotic and their things, they're the way that they talk. And, but we're not robotic and anything that becomes a bureaucracy kills your soul as well. And I'd be curious to hear any, anything you guys have to say about how do we design the right company. And we got about nine minutes left. So any, yeah, any I think we're closing the podcast on the right note, which is to go full philosophical again. And, <laughs> and my first comment, which is that the entrepreneur is this heroic fool that thinks that he or she can improve the world comes from this question, which I think I'd like to ask Anne point blank. As a designer, do you believe that we can design utopia? Do you believe Ooh. the utopia is can we design and solve, can design solve all problems, not just in theory, but in fact? That's why I got into design. I thought I fundamentally believe design can make the world a better place. Can make the world, but can, is it perfectible? Can we solve prop? Can we solve all problems? I don't think that's the goal of design. What's the goal? <laughs> I don't think perfection is the goal in some ways. I think expression is the goal. Understanding is the goal. And so I think we can achieve those goals. But I think utopia sounds like quite a boring place to me. So I have no, no desire to reach it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. There's no plot. There's like when all the yeah. problems are solved, there's nothing happening. And, but the initial impulse to design is not just a re response to beauty, but also a response to, I don't want to use the term ugliness, but problems like dysfunction. Mm, yeah. And so yeah. Yeah, we, there's definitely this innate response in when a designer is born is similar to the moment when an entrepreneur is born, which is like the world could be better. Like it's full of problems and this is sad and that's sad. And what, it, wouldn't it be better if this, wouldn't it be better if that? But do you think that there's ever a future in which, you know, we're not having that basic response to, to civilization? Yeah. I think that, uh, I believe design is problem solving and, I think that one of the biggest problems is that change exists, both in humanity, in the individual, in the environment. And so to reach, I think this utopia would be to reach a place where change does not exist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and I don't think that's a reality, or again, I don't think that's a place that I want to go. So I think design, we say problem solving, but maybe design is a response to change. And, mm -hmm. and that's how I see it. And that's how I think we can kind of design for change in a way that benefits people. Change is an opportunity to create more beneficiaries, essentially. 
So that's how I view it going forward. Even the concept of benefit, though, results in this thing of, can we live in a world where everyone is maximally benefited and and uh, mm-hmm. and there, there are no, what what's the opposite of benefit? Damage. And no, nobody's damaged and everyone's benefited. And then that's sort of utopia again. And so the, the I Ching is this ancient Chinese book, which is the book of changes. And it's the maxim that change is the only thing that doesn't change. The only constant comes from this philosophy of understanding the world. In the West, we've had this idea of perfectibility and that we're marching towards some future utopia. I've been reading these Native American stories and the 19th century history of the U.S., which is incredibly polarizing and difficult. The, the American Indian Wars, this sort of huge clash of civilizations moment where the way that things had been done for millennia in this, har- this s- society and civilization that sort of was centered in itself confronts this other civilization that's like in a gold rush <laughs> and is valuing material things and has property rights and draws lines on maps. And it reading reading the history of the Battle of Little Bighorn, for example, and the, the clash between the Lakota Sioux and, and General Custer and the Americans, it's a bit of, it's like watching a tragedy. It's, it, it really is tragic. And one of the things about classical tragedy is that they have the quality of those nightmares that you or that you can't mm-hmm. stuck. You're paralyzed. You can't actually change it and do anything. It's almost inevitable. It would be interesting to do a sci-fi series where a conscientious reader of history, maybe a woke millennial, maybe me, could time travel back in time to a specific moment and see if that one visitor from the future could change history and change events and make it happen differently. And the definition of tragedy would be that even if you put that time traveler back in time, you still wouldn't be able to change it. It's just doom, you know? And the, so then there's this question of like, well, why design? Why design? Why not? It's the same as any other avenue, right? It's why not design? (laughs) Same as like, why not engineering? Why not? Why not entrepreneurialism? (laughs) Because it was there. And I, I think that I will say this question of design, benefit, harm, meaning, beauty, this we could be on this podcast for the next 10,000 years and probably reach a conclusion. And I've read enough literature on the fact to know that we definitely have not reached a conclusion on this dynamic. Um, and so I think, yeah, design is what I chose. I would say this has to be a fundamentally personal answer. And it's what I believe and it's how I express and how I believe that I can bring beauty. So where can people find Rad Studios? You can find it online at radstudios.tech and LinkedIn. And also reach out to me, Anne Dudek, A-N-E-D-U-D-E-K. I'm on LinkedIn. Send me a message. Thank you, guys. Great. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.